Okay, welcome to another episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Today, I got the king of Section 8 in Detroit. I got Stuart Hicks. He is the CEO and founder of BRJ Consulting LLC. He has a really, really cool business model that also allows him to help so many people in the affordable housing world. So without further ado, Stuart, welcome to the show, man. I, when I first heard about your business model, it blew my mind. I was like, I need to talk to this guy and help just understand how does this business work and how did he come across solving this such unique problem that, you know, I had this fear myself. So mm -hmm. Stuart, tell us a little bit more about your business. Tell us a little bit more about your background and sure. let's, uh, let's hear about your background, man. All right. Well, thanks Kent. And thanks for having me uh, again, uh, folks. My name is Stuart Hicks and I stumbled into a niche in the marketplace uh, some years back where I was, I was finding that Section 8 tenants were grossly underserved in the marketplace. And uh, I began to think about how I could potentially play a role in assisting them to find not only affordable housing, but housing people want to live in. And as a result, uh, that's grown to a business that uh, helps hundreds and hundreds of families on an annualized basis uh, move into a home that they can be proud of and uh, assist landlords in taking non-performing or underperforming properties and turn them into rent rolling properties. Uh, one of the things that we pride ourselves on is our relationship and the way we develop our relationship with not only the tenants and the landlords, but with the Section 8 agencies. Uh, by doing that, it helps them to understand that there are resources out there. Most Section 8 agencies won't directly refer anyone, but they'll add you to their list. But depending on your relationship, they may put a star by your name or something. And uh, that results in activity and it results in traffic, which is great for the landlord that has the house they're trying to lease. Mm -hmm. So uh, my background is kind of varied. Uh, my first career was working for Uncle Sam in an undisclosed position that I won't get into right now, <laughs> but uh, did a little work uh, for them. Um, was able to retire pretty early uh, from there and I needed something to do. So I found a company that uh, provided a service to the community. Uh, what they did is they provided, it was a membership based club organization that uh, provided a resource for consumers to be able to buy the things that they needed and manage their resources, their financial resources more mm -hmm. effectively by not paying high markups that are normally associated with buying retail. Uh, I did that for a very long time, close to 30 years. And uh, as a franchise owner and a franchise manager coming up through the ranks, I was uh, basically responsible for a number of locations up and down the Eastern seaboard and into the Midwest from Michigan to mm -hmm. Massachusetts, <laughs> uh, all the way to Florida. And uh, that was a fun opportunity. And um, I really enjoyed that. Uh, when the time came for me to leave and we sold our franchises, I wanted to stay in the arena of assisting families. Mm -hmm. And my nephew actually had gotten into real estate and I was my primary, I have two primary residences, one here, one Georgia. I was in Georgia and he was up here. He used to work for me mm -hmm. at the other company. And he said, he, he begged me for three years to come up and help him. And I told him, I said, you know, you, you have the same degrees I have. What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> but what it boiled down to was um, he needed some organization. So I told him, I'll give you 90 days. So I came up back to Detroit, which is my home. And 90 days has turned into 15 years, 14 years. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it also sprouted the businesses that I'm now affiliated with and associated with. Uh, but my baby is my Section 8 placement company. Uh, I found that to be most rewarding. And it allowed me to reach a larger portion of the community that needed that kind of help in this particular environment. And as a result, I've been able to help hundreds of families every single year. Uh, and you'll have to forgive me if my phone rings because I didn't turn the ring off. Okay. You're okay. <laughs> uh, I get about 200 calls a day. Wow. And that gives me the opportunity to assist families in ways that others just can't. So that's a little bit about my background and kind of what I'm doing. 
Wow. I love it. So section eight placement, uh, I yes. think that term can be so specific, but also be general at the same time, right? What does section eight placement mean? Are you working for the landlords? Are you working for the tenants? Are you working for the agency? Tell us, let's go a little bit deeper into that. Sure. What is it that you actually do? The broad answer to your question is yes. I work for the yeah. landlords, I work for the tenants, and I work for the agencies. But in all reality, my loyalty is with the tenant and mm -hmm. placing them in a property as close to what they're actually looking for as we can possibly get. Mm. The, the value that I bring to landlords and management companies is the a, a, a great many of them just don't have the experience in dealing with Section 8. They may find the uh, programs and the documentation that you need to get someone in a home is tedious and cumbersome mm. and takes away from what they view their primary focus to be. And uh, for the Section 8 agencies, it helps them get tenants and get, get basically get them off of their desk mm -hmm. as uh, people that they need to assist. So getting them housed quickly is an advantage for the agencies. For the tenants themselves, because of the inventory of properties that I have access to, I'm able to give them a greater selection, not that I give them 100 properties, because mm -hmm. I've learned a long time ago, a confused mind doesn't make a decision. So <laughs> I, I ask them a number That's of right. questions. It's kind of my intake process so that I can narrow down what they're looking for, because tenants are going to ask one question. Uh, what website can I go to to see your properties? Mm. That's what they want to do. And I know that that doesn't work. There are mm. websites out there. The primary website I'm sure you're familiar with is affordablehousing.com, yep. yep. which is formerly Go Section 8. And that website is the best tool for prospective tenants to utilize to see different things in the area. But they should understand that those are only as good as the number of properties that the landlord puts on there. And it is probably far from what they actually have. Uh, my property listings are dynamic, which means what I have at 9 a.m. may not be what I have at 12 noon. It oh. just depends on, on who takes what property. And as a result, I'm not send, I, I, I can't send people so many different properties because when they settle on one, it'll be one that's probably gone. And that happens Got a it. lot. So, Got it. Uh, Got so it. that's the long answer to your question. I work for all three in different capacities. Uh, but my job is to make sure that the tenant gets a place that is comfortable, that fits the Section 8 budget that was afforded to them by their agency. And I love that you focus on what the what the tenant wants, right? Sometimes a lot of people forget that this is a business and you got to focus on a customer and solving right. the customer's problem. Um, how do you generally prioritize or what do you see from the tenants that you're helping? Are they always looking for you know proximity to a good school, proximity to a work location? Tell us a little bit more about that criteria and what generally do people look for? Low well, crime, I'm assuming. <laughs> no, well, actually, that criteria you're mentioning is typically what a cash tenant is looking for. Oh, interesting. Uh, okay. Less than 25% of Section 8 tenants ask me if schools, shopping, or hospitals are nearby. Interesting. They're more interested in the neighborhood and the type of home that it is. And they're mm -hmm. more in, they're is interested in getting as large a home as they can possibly get based on what's affordable. I will tell you this, one of the challenges, and if anybody from an agency is out there listening, when workers tell their tenants that their budget is, let's say $1,200, and $1,200 equates to a two-bedroom voucher, they don't have them focus on finding a solid two-bed. They tell them you can get as big a house as $1,200 pays for. I see. That's a true statement but it's not based in reality. And the problem with that is the worker is actually creating more problems for themselves potentially, because there's a good many tenants that will take that to heart. And what mm. happens is they're constantly looking for something that's unattainable. And as a result, they get close to their voucher expiration date and end up taking something that they'll never be happy in. And that's bad wow. for the landlord, it's bad for the tenant, and it's bad for the agency. So uh, one of my campaigns in Michigan is to try and get the workers to stop telling those tenants that. So, And I think that's so important because so much of it is about expectations, Correct. right? Um, yeah. And you got to manage the right expectations. It's like you, can, you can't tell everyone they're going to find a pot of gold or a diamond in a rough every single time. Like there are going to be nice homes, but yeah. not always. Um, well, not always what they want. 
Uh, one of the other things I try to do is I try to make sure that the homes that I have access to, to lease to these particular tenants are comfortable homes that are safe homes and uh, places that somebody would want to live. You know, one of the things I try to live by is if I won't let my daughter live there, I won't let somebody else's daughter live there. So that's it. the way I look at it. That's that's so beautiful, man. And I, I got a daughter too. So now I'm going to start thinking of that one too. I love it. No, that's a really good rule of thumb. I think yes. sometimes people overcomplicate things. Absolutely. Um, so tell me, tell me a little bit more about the relationships you've been able to build with landlords and property management companies. Like how did they first discover you? How did you discover this relationship? Because now you're starting, it sounds like you're getting a healthy flow of product and inventory yes. to source for your tenants. So tell us a little bit about how you built that uh, from well, basically from scratch. <laughs> basically from scratch. And it started out with my nephew. Uh, mm -hmm. I started leasing uh, his properties for him and uh, one thing kind of led to another, and then he introduced me to one of his friends who had some properties, and I started leasing for them. And uh, I guess it's kind of like that old shampoo yeah. commercial, you know, and they tell two people, and they tell two people, and they tell two <laughs> people. But it, 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 my business has literally grown almost a hundred percent by word of mouth. Wow. And, uh, you know, it's it's a close knit environment, even though it might be hundreds of people. But the real estate business, at least in uh, Michigan mm -hmm. and Metro Detroit, is very close knit. Most people know people and they and everybody kind of knows someone either, you know, tangentially or. Specific. <laughs> but uh, that's kind of how it grew, um, because I get calls from property owners from Australia that know somebody in Michigan. Wow. And uh, obviously they're in Australia. They, they can't manage their property. So, you know, things like that are things that help, but I've done very, very little advertising. So I'd mm -hmm. like to believe it's because my business model works, it's effective, and I'm known for getting good, solid, fair rents, not only for the agency, but also for the landlord, because I will fight for the rent uh, for a number of reasons. Not so much so the landlord gets rich, but so we maintain the integrity of the property values mm -hmm. in certain areas. Because every time someone takes a rent that's far below market value, it drops what they call the comparables in that market. Yep. And that makes it difficult for everybody to succeed uh, appropriately. That's right. And I think there, people forget that sometimes you might have the fair market rents or the payment standards out mm -hmm. there, but that doesn't necessarily mean you can charge that ceiling right away. It's got to be well, reasonable it, with the market. Right? Yeah, but it does depend on the area. Uh, mm -hmm. Even if you charge the ceiling, the agency will tell you no if it's too much, but they'll also tell you where it needs to be. And mm -hmm. if there is income there to take into consideration, yeah, everything's negotiable. And as long as you negotiate within something that the agency can do so they get a win and that the landlord can handle so they get a win, uh, then the tenant wins because they get the house that they wanted. Love that. You're solving such a big problem. So for anyone that's like new or even experienced investors listening right now, they might be thinking to themselves, hey, what is the difference between Stewart's company and a property management company then? So tell us like, what is your role kind of separate or delineate from that of a property management company you okay. just place them and say hey I i'm all set i'm all done this is you you take the phone calls for the clogged toilets tell us a little bit about that <laughs> well, no, i'm not taking any telephone calls for clogged toilets <laughs> well, what, what my job is specifically is to take the process from beginning to end sorry mm -hmm. you're good uh, yeah that's a tenant uh or prospective tenant uh, i take the process from beginning to end that means uh, the landlord provides the property. I get the tenant. I take care of all the tenant paperwork uh, that the landlord must provide me as part of my contractual arrangement with mm -hmm. them. And I, I show the property. I do uh, set up inspections. We can do that a number of different ways, depending on mm -hmm. the landlord's preference. And when the property passes inspection, I take care of the lease, get everything set up, send in the final paperwork, get the contracts and make sure that the management company or landlord has the contract so they know what their expectations are and the tenant knows what their expectations are. And my relationship with that tenant and that property typically ends there. 
Mm, there okay. are, I do have other companies that tie right into that. Like I do have a property management company as well. Because some of my clients, like the gentleman from Australia, uh, they need somebody to manage it. And then I have mm-hmm. different levels of management based on what they want me to do. One of the things that I always do, though, is I'm not a typical, when I do manage, I'm not typical mm-hmm. in that I don't have all the money come to me. And mm. then send the owner what they should get based on expenses and things like that. I'd much rather have all monies go directly to the landlord and then mm-hmm. invoice them for anything that I do. And that makes that puts them in control of their cash where they should be. I think that also simplifies your accounting a little bit. You a know, whole it's like- lot. Oh my God, you are smart. You are a smart businessman. Yeah, you know? I'm, not send, I'm not sending any of the 1099s, man. That's too many. <laughs> well, Stuart, that is really, really cool. And I love how you delineate where your role changes, right? So for mm-hmm. someone that, wow, they're listening to this, and they're like, wow, this is exactly what I need in my business mm-hmm. because this is a whole like spider web of like all these tasks and responsibilities that need to happen. Yeah. What does it actually cost for to hire someone for your services? Like to one, either place a, uh, place a tenant or even to just manage the properties. Okay. Well, uh, again, that's a question that has a couple of different answers oh, for leasing. Depending mm-hmm. on what I'm doing, it ranges anywhere from one month's rent to 15% of the annual rent. Just depends on what it is and what the landlord would like for me to do. As far as managing, my rates are typically 9 to 12%, again, depending on what it is that I'm actually doing for them. Well, give us some examples. What would be something that is kind of, I don't know, like, I don't know if you have these tiers like platinum or or diamond packages. What do you call them? (laughs) I call them special just for you. (laughs) <laughs> I don't believe in having platinum. Uh, I don't believe in doing all of that. I believe that every individual and in every management company has their own business model, mm-hmm. has their own levels of comfort and has their way they like to do things. So I pride myself on being able to tailor a program mm-hmm. specifically for what their needs are. And in doing so, it makes for a happy client. It makes my finance director happy because they clearly understand what this one does. And it isn't uh, an accounting or paperwork nightmare. Um, Like some people would think, well, how can you manage all those different numbers? I said, well, it's real easy. You put it in the system, (laughs) it calculates, it creates a bill. So um, it's simple. It's simple. Now, the, uh, the one thing I should mention is that because of the type of work I do, I do have caveats. Uh, for instance, mm-hmm. number one, when I'm done with the job, um, you're going to get invoiced and all invoices are due immediately upon receipt. Mm-hmm. That helps to keep the people that work for me paid timely yep. and continue right. to provide the service that you enjoyed for others. But uh, the bigger thing there is understanding what my level of responsibility is. If I put a tenant in there and the place passes inspection, I, I don't allow people to charge me back if something happens along the way and they lose the tenant. Mm-hmm. That 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 was I had nothing to do with that. That's a challenge that I have had in the past. Not a lot. I'd say two or three mm-hmm. times. But some people believe because they lost the tenant, they should get the money back that they paid to put the tenant in there. I said, you're managing it. Whatever happened after I got done, that's on yep. you. So uh, that that I wouldn't even really call it a major challenge, but it's happened a few times. And with people listening, I just want them to know if I do a complete job and my job is done, then we're on to the next one. If you lose that tenant and you want me to release the unit, well, that's another fee. Uh, And they just need to understand that. But I typically don't have that problem. I can count on one hand the number of times something like that came up. But that's pretty impressive, right? Because everybody wants to know it's not even like a success or failure, right? Like Mm -hmm. how, what it's more like, Hey, what has been the retention of the, the, the clients that you help them staff, right? Because vacancy expenses is one of the biggest expenses that lands are trying to keep, keep down. Right. So what, what does it look like for your, your landlords, the ones that have used your service? Do tenants typically stay three, five, seven, 10 years? What have you seen in your data? I'd say on average, 85% stay at least two years. Got it. And have you seen any sort of preferences? Like you mentioned earlier that some people want 
know, as large of a home as possible. Mm-hmm. But have you seen more success with, you know, renting out single family homes where people stay longer or like sing like one bedroom Apartments. properties? What have you seen perform better? About the same tenants? across the board because mm-hmm. it's based more on need of the tenant. If it's a single person, all they need is a one bedroom. Yep. Uh, sometimes they're able to get a two bedroom, but all they need is a one. If it's a family, uh, what we find in Detroit is a, a lot of tenants uh, every year want to upgrade. But that goes back to what I was saying about them not getting into the right unit mm. in the first place. Um, a lot of my tenants stay longer because we did it right the first time in terms of right. identifying a property that made sense. And uh, so so uh, I know landlords appreciate my service for that because I, I take that time. I will say that the, the biggest challenge that I find is impatient landlords. Mm. Uh, finding a tenant that is going to be the right tenant for the property is not going to happen typically in seven to 10 days. I need 14 to 21 days typically to do that. Now, I might find them tomorrow, but I always look for a 14 to 21 day window. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I also show properties before they're inspection ready. Uh, so, so if I've got somebody who I know will be perfect for a home, but it's seven days out before being ready, it's still showable. And I'll be able to show that uh, property to them at that time. That helps to expedite the process as well. Got it. And honestly, 14, 21 days is not that bad. It's no, it's not that bad, yeah, but I'm telling it's you. It's not that bad. Oh, man. You, as soon as the landlord gives me a property, especially new ones, they'll call me two days later. Do we have a tenant yet? Wow, that talk of that is a little impatient, man. Well, I would. I, 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 I was expecting to, three months to be honest. I, with you. I have to admit, <laughs> I'm partly responsible for that because I do have a little bit of a history of getting tenants very quickly. Uh, and, you're too uh, good at yeah. your job. Got it. Yeah. So <laughs> okay, uh, I help them. They, they understand. No, I mean, I think that's just another benefit to your business, right? Where. 14 to 21 days, like, you know, some of your large multifamily apartment complexes out there, you know, they would struggle with 14, 21 days. Well, they would. And I will tell you out here, there's a lot of competition in the multifamily Mm -hmm. arena. And if you have a 30 unit apartment building, it might take you 120 days to fill it. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. because there's so many choices for apartment living in Metro Detroit for Section 8 tenants. Uh, and then you get into the criteria. Some people don't charge security deposits, which makes entry uh, easier. Uh, other people require one and a half times security deposit, mm-hmm. which makes entry more difficult. Because after all, these are Section 8 tenants. Uh, they're, they're, they're trying to get where other people are. And as a result, you know, they may not be as well as uh, financially well healed as a mm-hmm. cash paying tenant. So folks have to understand that. Got it. Got it. Well, tell me a little bit more about the the tenants that you have been able to help, right? I think mm-hmm. you and I briefly talked about the stigma that's associated with Section 8, where sure. sometimes it's a, associated with drama, gang, drugs, you know, all the bad things that creates this fear in landlords that makes them not want to invest in this space. Yes. And that's a problem because we need more supply. So tell us a little bit about how you've been able to bust those myths with kind of your screening criteria. Well, and what are you doing? First of all, those myths are generated by, I'd I, I like to say, uh, one, one, well, it's the easiest way to say this. Those myths are created by typically one or two people that have had a very bad experience mm. for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. What I've found is when you create the expectation in the tenant right from the beginning, you're much less likely to have any issues associated with the events you describe mm-hmm. ever take place. Now, I personally took it upon myself. I surveyed, this is maybe four years ago, about 400 mm-hmm. cash paying tenants and about the same number of Section 8 tenants, maybe a few more. And, and not really them, but the landlords themselves, because these are some large management companies. And I had them do the numbers themselves and then share them with me. What they found was that 24% of cash paying tenants created damage in the properties prior to leaving. 4% of Section 8 tenants 
created this similar damage in the same time frame. There's reasons for that. HUD has rules. And when the agencies uphold those rules, it's very uh, dangerous for a Section 8 tenant to not do what they're supposed to do if they want to have affordable housing. Because number mm -hmm. one, they will lose their voucher. Number two, they're subject to eviction and judgments against them, which will prohibit them, even if they get a job, from being able to lease something in the, in the near future. So they have things uh, in place that cash tenants don't. Yes, cash tenants can get evicted in the same issues, but mm -hmm. they're not losing their job as a result of it. And for all intents and purposes, the money that Section 8 pays is the same as a tenant who has a job paying rent. So they don't want to lose their rent money. And mm -hmm. again, it all starts with the expectations you create in the beginning. When I talk to my prospective tenants, I'm very clear about what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. Mm -hmm. I also let them know that landlords will do random inspections twice mm -hmm. every quarter. That wow, means okay. they can pop up at your house anytime they want to. Now, they probably won't or, or may not, but it's just the idea that they will and they have the right to. They're in the leases. I make sure mm -hmm. they put things like that in their leases if they're not using mine. Got but, it. Uh, as far as the difference, I find personally in my own properties, I won't ever have anything but Section 8 tenants. A, I want to help them. And mm -hmm. B, uh, the, the rents are more stable. I can actually forecast based mm -hmm. on uh, and you right. can't do that on cash tenants, you're guessing. Right. And I think that takes away some of that market rate risk, right? With market rent properties. 100% you it takes away. Actually that. get predictability in the entire process. And I love your stat that you did where 24% of the cash tenants yep. damaged their properties, but only 4% actually right. did. And that is so important because everybody thinks of the stigma, these myths that just gets spread without actual substance. Or sometimes they're headline mm -hmm. news, right? But people forget to think about that there are rules that are trying to that are in place to hold people accountable to Absolutely. uphold a several level of standard so that you protect the landlord's properties and they're ultimately their investments, right? That they're trying to leave yes. for their kids uh, yes. in the next generation. Yeah, no landlord wants to spend ten thousand dollars every time they're turning a property. And in order to to be comfortable that it's less likely to happen, Section 8 tenants provide that. And going back to uh, uh, understanding forecasting and, and, mm -hmm. and being able to put your numbers together. You know, if you have a $1,200 unit and you have a cash paying tenant, you have to hope you're going to get all 1200. Mm -hmm. If I have a section eight tenant and their portion is only 150 and the uh, agency is paying the rest. Well, I know my only, my only risk is the 150 and I'm able to forecast much better on things like that. Now, don't get me wrong. You have some Section 8 tenants that make a lot of money, meaning they've got good jobs, but they got a bunch of kids. So they mm. do get Section 8 and Section 8 may only pay $100 and they may have to pay $1,100. That's the choice of the landlord as to whether or not they want to take that because that is essentially a cash ban tenant in my mind. So you, it runs the gamut. And I want to make sure everybody knows that. But you won't know what the tenant is going to pay until... Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, it's analyzed and processed by the agency. And as a landlord, you're still able to deny them if the, if you think the risk is too great. Got it. Especially if like, you think the portion is proportionally, you know, on yeah, I mean, the responsibility uh, of tenant side. Correct. Cause I have a threshold, me personally, mm -hmm. I, I tend not to want to be more than 30, 35% of the portion of the rent to be, uh, uh, to the tenant's responsibility. And quite frankly, that's right in the range of what Section 8, uh, their guidelines are. If they're employed, mm -hmm. typically they're going to be responsible for about 30%. But th that's so much better than the tenant being re responsible for 100%. Yeah, because then, then then what protection do you have left? Zero. Right? Uh, Zero. <laughs> you don't need to be a math whiz to know that one. That's um, true. Um, Stuart, so you, you briefly mentioned like how there are programs to get folks, maybe not fast track is the right word, but get them into the section eight program. Yes. What other services do you offer to either current uh, section eight voucher holders or prospective section eight voucher holders that helps them through this process? Because not only are you, you're really building a really long-term relationship with these mm -hmm. folks. 
because you're yeah, starting I, from the beginning. I, I do. I do because there I have many tenants that I've leased multiple times too. But mm-hmm. if you are trying to get on Section 8, that's going to be a daunting task. Um, most everywhere you go, you're going to find waiting lists that could be anywhere from 18 months to 12 years in, in some states. New York, uh, California, Michigan has one of the longest waiting lists out of all of the states. And I also found another interesting statistic. The state of Michigan actually gets more Section 8 money than New York or California. Wow. <laughs> I, was, I had no idea. I was at, that's one of the reasons I'm here is because it's a bigger market of uh, Section 8 tenants per capita. But if you are trying to get on Section 8 and you're struggling, the best advice that I can give in the, Mich- in the Detroit area, there's an agency called CAM, which is all encompassing. And uh, it's a place where you go to register for services and they typically run shelters in almost Mm -hmm. any city. There is a similar program. It might require you to spend some time in a shelter anywhere from a night to two or three weeks, maybe. But they can then you, you get pulled by what's called a rapid rehousing agency or permanent supportive housing agency, many of whom are all one in the same. They just have those different programs. Those agencies will pay your rent in the same manner that Section 8 does. And those that are on the rapid rehousing side are then going to be fast-tracked to Section 8. So what might take you five years doing it on your own? If you're willing to go spend a few nights in a shelter, you could be on Section 8 in 8 to 12 months. But in the meantime, we'll have another agency that will support you in your search for rent and pay the rent. Now, from from a landlord perspective, you might be looking at eight to 15% less than normal section eight, but it's still reasonable rent and you you get your property uh, 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 done from being vacant, excuse me. Right, because then you can fill those occupants and you got someone in need, like in dire need to kind of get the location as soon as possible. Correct. It solves that expenses, but that is such a huge gem for people that, you know, are struggling because like I told you before, it was seven years when I was in affordable housing. Um, It was a seven year wait list and down in San Diego. When I went to the local housing authority, they told me it was 12 to 15 years. Yeah. That's a really long time. What, what is it in Michigan or in the cities that you work in? About seven to 10 years, depending on the agency in Metro, (sighs) in Metro Detroit, there may be 20 different agencies that assist with housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one, two, three, four, five, five or six Section 8 agencies and maybe another 10 or 12 rapid rehousing agencies. So there's a wow. number of agencies because there's just that big of a need in the metro Detroit area. And those agencies are not able to actually still handle the caseload. The amount of volume must be yeah. Could probably the, the market could support twenty more agencies. Oh my god! I mean, I think that that lines up well with your seven to ten year wait list for Detroit. I well, mean, it most definitely is. There's a huge wait list now. People need to understand. There's two wait lists. One is for you to even get an application put in, <laughs> and the other yes. one is once your application is now you got to wait for it to get pulled. So the total process is seven to 10 years uh, in some, in in most instances, there are a couple of agencies where it could be one to three years, just depending on how things roll, how things flesh out, because there are some smaller cities Mm -hmm. that have section eight budgets, but they're smaller than the normal state budget, or they're smaller than the larger city budgets. For instance, Detroit Housing Commission is as big as the state of Michigan, uh, whose agency is called MISHTA, Michigan Housing Development Authority. Um, but you got some smaller cities, some suburban cities where their budgets might be 30 percent less, which means that the rent budget is going to be 30 percent less. Got it. Well, it seems like you are specializing in Detroit, right? Stuart, what are you in any other markets or you are just trying to just only focus on Detroit? Tell me a little bit more about, you know, where where your growth is for your business coming next, right? Are well, you just I'm, trying to double down in Detroit? What's going no, on? I'm, I'm in a lot of counties in Michigan. Uh, Detroit okay. is the largest, but I do have uh, clients in Louisiana, Florida, Tennessee, 
California is coming. Uh, okay. but, and and uh, my son is in Houston now setting up some things there. And Georgia. Forgot about Atlanta. Wow, Stuart. So that sounds like a lot of states. What what does your team look like now, Stuart? Like how how do you organize all this work? Because your phone is literally blowing up as you're talking to me. Like right. <laughs> how, how how are you organizing? Are you hiring more people? Like do you have like local state liaisons for your business? Like, how do you orga- organize all that stuff? Well, at this particular point, it's still easy to do things uh, using technology, whether it's mm-hmm. phones, computers, uh, or what have you. But I do have strategic people placed in certain areas that can get to a place mm-hmm. if need be. Uh, and the way I've structured some of my contracts with people in other states, because I, I ended up in those states because my clients here have properties in those states. Ah, <laughs> so that's why. That, that, <laughs> helped, that helped with the expansion, the natural expansion. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it's pretty easy to do because the properties are mostly multifamily. They have property managers. So if I get, uh, if our call center gets uh, inquiries from those areas, I set them up with the property manager on site so I don't have to fly to Mm -hmm. New Orleans. I don't have to fly to South Beach or wherever the case may be. Although I wouldn't mind that one. (laughs) Well, I can't wait till you come to San Diego, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, That'll be fun. Well, Stuart, like, tell me more about just the can you just share a story of someone that you've helped like recently or in the past, like a good member story? Because I think sometimes we forget that this is a business, but this is really a business about helping people. Yeah. Any good stories that you, you've been able to, of people that you've been able to help. I would love to hear one of them. Well, um, I've got quite a few, but one of the best ones is a young lady who I first helped back in, I think 2015, maybe mm-hmm. uh, she was maybe in her forties at that time. Uh, and, uh, when we got her in the house, when she came up to the house and saw it, she was just so excited running around screaming, yelling, Oh, this is my house. I'm claiming it. This is where I'm going to be. And uh, the agency did not approve the rent requested. Oh no. She was, uh, let's just say she was a basket case to some degree at that time. So, um, found out that she had failed to send in some documents showing her employment, uh, that she had additional em- employment. Mm-hmm. So we got that in and the agency did approve the rent. But what was nice about that is when they came to sign their lease, she brought me this basket, this this fruit basket, that she because she was, just wanted to say thank you. And I said, well, I appreciate that because I don't generally take mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah. But what surprised me, this had to have been maybe February, which is bitterly cold mm-hmm. here at, at that time. I got a call out of the blue just before Easter. And then she said, there's something at the house that's going on. And I, I, I know you're not the landlord, but I just wanted to know if you could come and take a look at it for me and tell me how to deal with the landlord. So she says, but I'm only I'm, I'm away and I'm only going to be here on Easter. I know it's a big deal to ask anybody to come by on Easter. But if you had any time in your day, could you do it? So I went by there. I go in the house and the whole family is there, had this big dinner. And they just said we couldn't uh, say thanks without having the person Aww. that got us there coming and at least uh, spend a few minutes with us, but hopefully share East, Easter dinner. So oh, that was one that, speak, that sticks with me. Yeah, that was pretty cool. But yeah, I could tell you stories all day long, good ones and bad ones. <laughs> I mean, Stuart, I mean, that's a beautiful story, man. Like I, I, my yeah. eyes are a little wet right now, just hearing well, it. It's... It, it, it. It was something that, you know, I've had a lot of people say, come over and get some food. But, you know, I, I don't eat everybody's food. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Stuart, I mean, that that is such a beautiful story. I mean, tell us. You know, we, we always talk about the good and the bad here on this podcast because yeah. sometimes people need to understand, like, hey, what bad things can happen? But then mm-hmm. how does Stuart handle those problems, right? Because then when you remove the fear or the unknown or the mystery from investing in affordable housing because they saw, oh, that problem mm-hmm. came up, but this is how Stuart handled it. It takes that fear out and it makes you more want to invest. Do you well, have sure. a bad story that you can share with us? But maybe how you handled it or how you guided the landlord through through that process. Sure. I can tell you one right now that happened this year. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my agents leased a property 
got all the appropriate documentation, submitted it. Landlord got the first month's rent and the security deposit. But everyone was under the impression that this rapid rehousing agency was paying their rent. Mm. And in fact, it turned out that this was a placement from the city of Detroit that went through them, but that the city of Detroit wasn't paying anything, that the tenant was on their own. And all of that somehow got away from everybody because I know the paperwork. I saw the paperwork myself and I agreed to sign off on it. And it was a 12-month lease with this agency. And uh, the agency didn't pay uh, beyond that. Actually, this was must have been November. I said the first six years. That's when it was brought to my wow. attention. So the owner of the property called their management company, and the management company is my client. And mm-hmm. they were furious. They said, I thought this guy and his company got me 12-month leases and all this. That. Now, mm-hmm. mind you, in all these years, this has never, ever happened. Mm-hmm. But it did happen this time. So I told him, I said, look, I said, there's two things we can do. I said, we can work to get the tenant out, work to help the tenant find a resource to pay the rent, or I can refund you my fee uh, because I'm going to take responsibility for that as it wasn't an agency. And then on the next one, uh, I'll personally handle your account. Well, he stopped being angry at that particular point. Uh, I, I did refund the fee. And uh, as a result, I still have a happy client. But that's something literally out of, I don't know, seven, 8,000 families. That is the only time that has ever happened. Uh, I, and and it, it, it actually helped me because I'm, I've got to get back in and pay a little closer attention to the different mm-hmm. agencies because there's new ones popping up and find clarity because they were very, it, as I went back through everything, I found that they were kind of ambiguous to my uh, agent in terms of when they mm-hmm. answered questions about how rent was being done and so on and so forth. Uh, they avoided actually ever saying that it was a 12 month agreement, but because we had worked with the agency that supplied the deposit for so long, my agent made the assumption. God understood. Agreement. Now I didn't take his money back, but I did uh, reimburse the property. Well, I reimbursed the management company so they could reimburse the property owner, but that right. would be, literally the worst landlord scenario Mm -hmm. I've ever dealt with. Now, as far as a tenant, every single landlord has a good paying tenant, but they're the tenant from hell. (laughs) All right. Tell me. I have one. And this lady will call the city's uh, engineering or health department before she'll call us. And every time we've gone out there, the issue has been the result of something she did. Oh, like man. putting wipes in the toilet and causing clogs in the stack pipes of, of it. And this is a beautiful three bedroom, two bath house. Mm. Got all granite and gooseneck sinks and all this other stuff. And she complains literally about everything. And I was trying to figure out what, what changed because she had been my tenant twice before. Yep. Zero problem. Zero problem. Mm-hmm. Turns out she's got this new boyfriend who's not on the lease, not supposed to be there. Uh, but, you know, I'm I'm pretty lenient on that. I'm not going to tell people how to live their lives as long as it doesn't infringe on anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, this guy had been constantly telling her he doesn't like where they're living. And this is what you do to make the landlord uh, have problems. So they'll either let you out of your lease or your Section 8 agency will say, you got to, we'll cancel the contract. Here's what neither one of them understood. The agency knows me 10 times better than they know her. I Mm. have hundreds and hundreds of tenants placed with them with zero issues. And they understood that they were the problem, not me. So that didn't work. Then I, unfortunately, I've gotten to know a couple of city inspectors better than I want to as a result of her complaint. <laughs> they call me saying, Stuart, what are you going to do? This lady calls us every day. I said, tell her to stop calling. Mm. I said, plain and simple. Just tell her you're not going out. Well, we have to respond to every complaint. I said, write her a nuisance ticket. I oh, said, there yeah. are a couple of things you can do. She's being a nuisance. I said, write her a nuisance ticket. So I haven't heard much from them, but she has been an absolute pain, cost the owner, a little over $1,800 in the last 60 days 
because we had to send a plumber out there three, four times to clear us uh, to clear uh, stuff they put in the drain. She cut a hole where or she took the dryer vent out and cut a bigger hole, mm -hmm. ran a hose through the hole and wet up the floor and called the city and said the, the floor is leaking. Oh, oh, man. And, you know, you can't make this stuff up. You just can't make it up. So, you know, dealing with things like that. And then to top it all off, she hasn't paid her tenant portion in like four months. Got it. So Got it. She, so she, oh, it's going to be a wrap with her. Her lease is up at the end, at the end of February. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So we, we are filing an eviction notice for lack Got of uh, payment of rent. But more mm -hmm. importantly, when uh, Section 8 sends out their, they always want a good standing document to go back mm -hmm. to what we started talking about earlier. Yep. When these people want to move, they have to have good standing from their current landlord or they can't, or they lose their section eight. She's all done. Cause I've told her, I, I, I gave her chance after chance. I says, keep listening to him, keep listening to him and see where he gets you. Make him go get a job. Cause he's going to have to pay for where you guys live next. There you go. So, <laughs> So. I mean, that is so important for people to hear because that can happen. If you yes. if you own enough units, you will eventually face that problem. But here's Absolutely. the thing. People, people think it's only Section 8. This can happen with any market no, rent that property. Happens, that actually happens with cash tenants in, in various forms and fashion mm -hmm. much more often than it exactly. happens with Section 8 tenants. I don't know if it's because Section 8 tenants tend to be more appreciative of mm -hmm. getting a place to stay and not being on the streets. Than cash tenants because they can get up and go wherever they want to go in their in their minds, but I I, I take a specific philosophy to um, issues like that. Number one, it is never the problem that's the problem. It is always what you do about a problem that is either a problem or a solution. So to landlords, I say it's how you handle things that make the difference. Tenants are easy to deal with, even if they have a problem, so long as the line of communication is open and you mm -hmm. do something proactively about it. When you ignore them, which so many landlords do, that's where it becomes a problem and snowballs. So one of the last things that I'll say on that topic, if you're a landlord and you're going to do Section 8 because of its immense benefits, be just as responsive to Section 8 tenants as you do your mm -hmm. cash tenants. They are not second-class citizens. <laughs> that's right. And maybe, Stuart, how we wrap this up is like we, we made this podcast a little bit more heavily towards like tenant screening. Mm -hmm. If you were you talked about setting expectations, if there were other like two or three screening criteria that you would recommend that everybody implements into their process today, what might that be? Number one, credit score is not should not be a heavy criteria for Section 8 tenants. Mm -hmm. They will either have no credit or marginal credit at best. If you're getting the majority of your rent from the agency, then credit score should not weigh as heavily as it might using other criteria. If the tenant has a bruise in their background, such as an, a conviction, find out what it is and how long ago it was, because the bottom line is you can't even get Section 8 if you have an open felony or you're currently on paper or parole or, or, or whatever for, mm -hmm. for violent crimes. I, I'm not saying uh, uh, let them all in because there are certain types of violent crimes, I don't care if they're 20 years old, that I deny. Uh, mm -hmm. And the last thing is evictions. There's always a story behind the evictions and it isn't always the tenant lying to you. Uh, you need to take a look and see what the circumstances were. Well, uh, did the landlord not fix a, a, a plumbing problem and their basement was flooded? Then the tenant left and they ran eviction papers. Uh, did, is, is this person really the person that was evicted? I've had a number of people who didn't even know they had an eviction and it turned wow. out to be the wrong tenant. But those kinds of things follow tenants. So you can't be loose and, and, and fast and furious with them. Mm -hmm. If you're going to look at someone and you see an eviction, find out what it's for. And if the eviction is more than two or three years old, I, I, I personally take that into consideration. So those would be some things. Those are things you absolutely have to do for cash tenants. For Section 8 tenants, you got to be a little more lenient and understanding about it and dig, dig a little more. Understood. Well, Stuart, this has been an amazing conversation. 
you have provided so much value to the audience. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Stuart? Like where can landlords and property managers and folks that need help reach out to you? Two things. Uh, because this is an open podcast, the easiest <laughs> don't way give to your reach phone number. <laughs> no, I, I don't mind giving my phone. All right, all right. Um, but I'm only going to give my tenant line. If you're a landlord, just send me a text on this line and I'll give you a direct business line. Okay. Uh, for ten, for uh, it's 313-643-5307. Doesn't matter what state you're in. You can call me. If I can't help you directly, I can put you in touch with who can. The second thing I'll give is my email address, which is always the easiest. Mm-hmm. It is brjpmanager at gmail.com. So phonetically, right. that's uh, Brian Robert James Peter Manager at gmail.com. Feel free oh. to reach out at any time. Uh, there's no question that's too, um, um, uh, whatever you want to call it. You can ask me anything <laughs> that you want, uh, and I'll be happy to address them. Well, Stuart, you know I'm going to be calling you. That is Anytime. for sure, man. And I know there's going to be so many people that are going to have even more questions. But okay. if we, oh, one last, if thing, anybody, I, yeah, one last thing I'd like to add, if for any reason I can't answer my phone because it rings more than 200 times a day, please do not leave a voicemail. Send me a text <laughs> message and please include your name. Thank you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, Stuart, this has been an amazing conversation. I'm really hoping to get you back on the show again in a year or a couple months. We'll see how, how your business continues to grow because I, I would love to see how many more people can you help. I, sure. I just, I'm so excited for your business because you're solving such a critical problem for folks that one, they might not want to get involved in affordable housing, but now they have you to guide them through the process. And that inevitably helps solve the problem of lack of supply of affordable Absolutely. housing. So well, Kent, that's how we're doing. I'm very happy that you invited me to be on today. Uh, I'll be available anytime you'd like to talk. So feel free to reach out at any time. Thank you so much, Stuart. Appreciate it. All right.